Hello again and welcome to my latest edition of Magnified, the podcast in which I get interesting people to come to my kitchen table and to talk to me at length about the things that interest them and interest me and hopefully when you hear it all will interest you. An opportunity in a little bit more depth than is available to me on the last word of Today FM. So, who have I got today? Well, this man didn't do his junior cert as I was surprised to discover, went off to do a plastering apprenticeship but became a very successful businessman and a wise one at a very young age and is now the chief executive of one of our stock market quoted building companies, the house builder Glenvey. Stephen Garvey is exceptionally knowledgeable and articulate about the challenges facing Ireland for housing now and in the decade ahead and the type of housing that we should have and he's very much in favour of the idea of own door developments rather than apartments. There's lots of reasons why. There's lots of things that he informed me about during this discussion. I hope you enjoy it. Stephen Garvey, thank you very much for joining me here at my kitchen table for the Magnified podcast. And there's so much I want to talk to you about as one of the country's biggest home builders. But I want to start with the whole issue of houses against apartments, because it certainly seems that it's government policy to try and encourage apartment living. But have the Irish really adapted to that idea as yet? There's, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, I think there's definitely an element of society out there that accepts that they, they want to live in apartments and, and where those apartments are located. I think if you look at the city centre, obviously that's where mass market, the mass market for apartments is obviously in the city centre, particularly with a transient workforce. You know, if you look at Dublin city today, you know, we've got all the top IT companies and their employee base is probably, you know, some of them are coming in here for four or five years to work. So living in an apartment in the city centre with no need of a car, that makes absolute perfect sense for them. And they don't necessarily want to commit to buying they, either, they do they? they don't want to commit to buying, absolutely, because their, their, their view on life is that we're here for five years, we're here to work really hard, be it for Google or Facebook, whoever it is. And obviously they may move to San Francisco or they may go back to India, wherever it may be, they, they may move back and, and obviously they're not too keen to have home ownership. Um, so apartment living really does suit them. If you take the Irish person who's 35 or 36 years of age and they're just starting a family or their, their intention is to start a family, and that's what we're seeing in our trends is that the buyer today is, is in, in 2005 and 2006, you could see the database was telling us that the average buyer age was about 27 to 29 but that has shifted dramatically particularly over the last 15 years and that buyer is now much older and they're at a different stage of life and they're obviously keen on home ownership and obviously the home is the most important element for that because three biggest decisions in life is getting married having a child and buying a home and that decision is key for them in the sense of where they want to be and but what the function of the house is for them and I suppose that's the problem that we see out there at the moment is that we have moved so dramatically in the last few years to shift towards more urban product. And that transition hasn't been met by the sector or by the, the consumer. And I suppose that's the challenge that's really posed out there. And if you just look at the planning permissions that exist in the system today, as, as of live of this hour, we now have 75,000 units granted. Exclude all the issues with JRs and challenges and all that, just live in the system. Sorry, JR has been judicial, judicial reviews. reviews. Okay. Uh, which are obviously contentious, but just what can be built that is fully granted. We 75,000 units. Of that, my view is we are 60,000 plus in apartments and we are 15,000 in housing. And I suppose that poses the real challenge. We are now so weighted nearly 80, 20 towards urban product. The consumer doesn't want it only unless they're renting the product, which is obviously in the city centres. The consumer doesn't want it. The, the consumer can't get enough capital to buy it because the mortgage rules and all of those things. And the developers and the builders can't produce it. And I suppose that's the real challenge. And so an awful so, lot of these permissions will not actually be acted upon. I, I think you're already seeing that. I think you're seeing, obviously, the government are trying to counteract this with the likes of Creekona. So Creekona is a... Is a is a product that the government is trying to incentivize the delivery of apartments. But the problem is that the, the customer isn't there to buy those apartments. They, don't, they just don't want it. If they're at that stage of life, now maybe things will change over time that more and more people will move to it, but 
they'll want it at a cost. Like if you, an apartment probably suits someone who's renting it or someone who's very young in life, some, a 25 or 26 year old professional, and they want it for a certain period of time. Those professionals aren't out there at the moment buying those apartments and they're not available to them. That's the more frustrating thing. There actually is no apartments at this moment in time being built to sell to the customer. But about a decade ago or so, on the back of the financial crisis and the property crash, there was almost like an unofficial policy shift, which I'm not sure people in the general population fully understood, was that, well, we've decided we've had had too many houses in the country that people can't afford, so we need to be more like the continental Europeans where people are going to have to rent for life. Yes. But yet that doesn't seem to have really percolated into what people want, does it? Even if that's the sort of the policy decision. No, and there's been, to a degree, there's been a global shift. It's not just renowned to Ireland at this moment in time. There's been a global shift. And it, this is kind of an astonishing thing. And, you, you know, we look at our parents' decade when they bought their first home and interest rates were 17 and 18%. And, and like, they were tough days for our parents. But they got to home ownership. This present generation, and you've just looked at the cycle that we're now coming out of, interest rates have been, to a degree, almost flat for the best part of 10 years. But home ownership in the Western world has been declining, particularly in Ireland, particularly in Europe, and even in the US. So when they should have been taking advantage of low interest rates? Absolutely. Like, when low interest rates, the whole idea of is when the counterbalance to the cycle is that interest rates are low, obviously home ownership is increased, but that didn't happen in this last decade. This was actually the astonishing thing, particularly after the global financial crisis. And I think a lot of problems stemmed out of the global financial crisis that institutions restricted more lending. The product that was produced evolved dramatically. And it actually came out of the, to a degree, it came out of the, the grasp of, of people to actually get there. And I think that has been changing. And we have seen it from two fronts. We've seen the financial institution who have to be there to provide the capital to the customer. And we've also seen the regulatory side of change. And both collided together and then shifted. And what really has happened is, because that home ownership has been decreasing at such a rate, what's really happened is the institutions have just stepped into the void because they've replaced home ownership where people are actually just ending up renting the product for longer. I don't fully buy into the mindset that, if you think of it long term, home ownership is actually good. I, if you're buying the house at an affordable rate, and I just look at the product we're producing today, you know, if we're building a home for 400,000 euros today, with all the government initiatives, the consumer can pay for that house for less than 1,000 euros a month. But to rent the same product is 2,000 euros a month. And if you look at the house that we produce in Glenvay, it's, it's, it's an, a rate, an A1 rated house. It's the most high, highest rated house in, that you can build under the regulations. The consumption of energy bills, particularly now at this moment in time, is 50% of what a house would be 10 or 15 years older. So all of those things are going to be at play. And I, and I look at it as if they can get to home ownership, if the house can be produced and they can get the capital to buy it, that's the best way of reducing the cost of living for those people. But it's interesting that you bring in the issue there of the energy use, because again, one of the reasons why it seems about a decade ago that there was this move in Ireland and internationally to push people into urban living and in apartments was for environmental reasons to be near to services, not to have urban sprawl and whatever you have. But it seems to have been contracted by the fact that the apartment blocks then are so expensive to build. Yeah, and, and apartment blocks are really expensive to build. Why are they so expensive to build? There's a number of aspects um, and I think people haven't really focused in on it. There's, there's there's the pure regulations of the quality of the product and that structure, and that has really improved. And for the better, let's be honest about it, the product we produce to better is chalk and cheese to what was done. We don't want more longboat keys or things Absolutely. like that. Absolutely, and, and, and even for the long-term future, the quality of that product is just much better. And there's been an element of insulation increase, PV panels, heat pumps, uh, the fire regulations in the buildings. All of those things are for the better, and we accept that. And as an industry, we should not roll back on this. So that you have to accept, and, and for the better. It's, a, it's very much like how we've moved from the diesel car to the electric car. Look at the change that's made. The other major factor is it's the capital cost in the apartments. If you're building an apartment development today, you're probably in a development of three or 400 units. The amount of work in progress to deliver that is ginormous. I'll just give you an example. 
and just take Glenvay's business. Our long-term ambition is to deliver 3,000 units a year. If Glenvay was to build 3,000 apartments every year and sell it to the public, to the public uh, that are out there, we'd need about a billion euros in work in progress. A billion euros. If I was to build the same in owned-door housing, I'd need about 350 million. Why? Explain the difference. It's just, it's the cost based of the apartment. It's the amount of, when you start an apartment block, just say a typical apartment block of 100 units, before you can move the first person in, the 100th unit has to be finished. So you have all that work in progress that has to be out from day one. And that's, that's the other thing too, it's the timeline. Sorry, whereas, whereas if on a housing estate, I'm remembering back to my own first house, that it's done in parts. So we moved in, but the building work is still going on in the next section of houses around the corner. Exactly, exactly. And you can break it up into to sections. You can do 10, finish the 10 and move to the next 10. And the difference with a house is, in, in a house, the timeline from starting, once you have the roads and services in, if you have all the utilities to the gate and in, in the development, in our sites at the moment, we're able to turn housing within about 16 to 20 weeks. So from the day we start the house to the day we can hand over the keys, it's about 16 to 20 weeks. In an apartment, the timeline is somewhere between 18 and three years, depending on the scale of the apartment. So just take the amount of capital and then take the longevity of the capital. That's a massive constraint. And, and, just and even beyond it, that, is it still more expensive to build it's apartments still more because expensive. of the height? The, fi- the finance is just one element of it. As you move through height, so once you breach 18 metres in height, your fire regulations become much greater. So the amount of fire stopping, sprinkler systems, exit plans, all of those, those become more expensive. So the higher you go, the more expensive it actually gets. The whole idea is when you're applying height is you're using your land much better. So that's definitely one challenge. But the other thing that people haven't factored in is it's, it's the workforce. What's really happened here is, and, and it's, it's across the Western globe really, is that if you look at housing production, from, say, post-World War II. We were at our height in around the 1950s and 60s. And then the 70s and the 80s, we started to dwindle. And we kind of kept steady pace. But there was a major difference was that the amount of workforce or the available people to do was much greater. You had a far larger proportion of the workforce which were uneducated, and they went into work and construction. It was one of the most intensive... uh, sectors that actually just pulled in a large workforce and had them available to them. What has happened is, as we have become more educated in the West, less and less people. The other big shift that's happened is that the education, there's the, the productivity keeps reducing because the, the workforce gets, keeps getting older and older. As you go through generation from generation to generation, it moves up. And every time it moves up, and particularly, construction is a very manual process. It's a very labor-intensive process. So these are the dynamics. The labor base has just moved up. right. And the thing that we're, where we really shifted was, and I don't think people realize this, everyone says, well, we built 90,000 apartments or 90,000 homes in 2005, 6, and 7. Rightly or wrongly, we did. And we had the workforce suit. But we relied so heavily on Eastern European labour at that point in time. And think about it. The block had only come down in the late 80s. That workforce became available to all of Europe all the way through the noughties. That has diminished because their economies have recovered. They've been all disparate everywhere across the globe now. So that available pool of workforce has been shrinking. And the indigenous workforce you have also has shrank. So now the pool of labour is actually less and less. I'm going to come back to the apartments versus houses in just a little while, but I've maybe been a little bit sidetracked, but I am interested in your own personal background in this because you left school at 15, didn't you, to set up your business as a plasterer? Yes, uh, I left at 15. I actually didn't even complete my junior cert. um, Why not? I, it was it was it was funny times. I suppose I would look, they were hard times for for you know. I my family was my mum was quite ill. Um, I I always wanted to go to college. I actually wanted to do study economics. Um, but I suppose it, it, I could see that it was a choice between me or my sister. We we're going to end up going to college, so I kind of took the hard path quickly. I wasn't. I was I was quite good in school, but I kind of when I got to secondary school, I kind of decided, look, this is not for me, and I wanted to go out and work. Um, so I, yeah, I went out working with my dad in fairness to him. He was very strict. If you're leaving school, you have to go out and get a job. 
he probably worked me as hard as humanly possible for the first what season. did your dad do my dad was a plaster so he it was with him him i went first um he worked me as hard as he could i suppose hoping that he would break me and i just changed my mind and go back i didn't i stayed with it and then i suppose by 18 i was running i had about 100 people working for me um, we got in with some of the largest contractors. Hang on a second. How many 18-year-olds end up there's having about 100 people many. working yeah, for them? There's probably, there's probably not many. Um, I was lucky. I was really lucky. It was, it was just the late, it was kind of the mid-90s. The, the, the Celtic Tiger had arrived to Ireland. Um, I spotted the opportunity, um, kind of seen an opening and just went for it. Um, but yeah, actually, but something that strikes me as important, though, given that you are now running a publicly quoted company, which yes. looks to build 3,000 units a year. But they didn't ask the, me on the CV for that one, by the way. That was, that was, they accepted my experience, not my education. But I think actually your experience though, might be more relevant in the sense that you know what it takes to build a house. But maybe there are too many people who are involved in this who are financial experts who've done their third level education who can do their internal rates of return and they look at all the, yeah. which you can probably yeah, I, do, I as can well. do as well actually I, I learned how to do internal rate of return quite early actually yes okay but yeah. the point is that they don't necessarily understand the physical requirements of building a yeah. house or an apartment I, I suppose that's the benefit i really have is i've seen it from all aspects i've seen it from the ground right up um i worked on the building sites when i was young i seen it here in the 90s the houses we built I've seen how the industry has evolved. I've seen how the globe has evolved. Um, I can see where the trends are now going. Um, and it does kind of, to me, the, the one thing, as I said, about the labor force and how it's shifted is, the one thing that people don't realize is that construction and the construction industry is one of the most unproductive industries in the globe. It's right up there with agriculture. Um, and I think it's something that's going to have to be really addressed. Because Sorry, in what way unproductive? It's just unproductive. The cost, how they've moved up, how the labour force, the cost, uh, all of those things are just, it, it's changed dramatically. From where it was 50 years ago, it's been on a downward trend. If you think about the construction industry, it hasn't embraced technology. You know, technology is only, like we're only using BIM now. You know, you Sorry, think what's BIM? BIM is, is building modelling. So basically you can design the entire building and you can model it out. And, and what we do in our business is we, by doing this is we push it through the entire production line. So from start to conception, when we buy our land to putting what product we're going to put on to actually moving it through our manufacturing and putting it through our subcontractors and all that, we actually have that technology embraced in the business. We've also embraced manufacturing as well. Like, you know, house builders are meant to be house builders. But we actually have three factories, and our intention is to produce about 60 to 70% of our entire product under a factory floor um, because we can see the shift coming. And then transport it to site Trans and reassemble on Re site? Reassemble to a degree. Some of it will be assembled already, pre-assembled and, and things like that. Um, we've started at component point, so what we've looked at is what elements were applicable to us at this point in time, and over time we're going to evolve it. Like We're doing very much the business at the moment is looking 10 years out. Where is housing going to be? Where is it going to be required? What's it going to look like and how is it going to function? And like, there's going to be a drastic change coming. As we have to, ad to address the climate issues, our houses now need to become neutral users of energy. And to a degree, I can see the house actually becoming a contributor. It'll actually produce energy into the future. So that's why I think the future is bright, but I think the path is hard. Um, but over time, like, like, to think about it this way, in our house today, it's A1 rated. It produces energy during the day. It's also adaptive now for the, 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 the work at home workforce that's happened out there. You know, three, three days a week in the office, two days at home. That energy use and the ways we look at it is the consumer is going to use more energy because they're working from home. But our consumers are moving to electric cars and electric cars have to be charged. So if you can absorb all that power and take it through the house and bring it back into your car, you've reduced the cost of living again. And I think this is where, when I talk about housing, I don't look at the mortgage payments. I look at the entire whole cost of how much can my consumer need to, how much do they need to pay? How much do they need to consume? Does that though have to be done in a house rather than in an apartment? Housing is definitely easier to do. Um, I suppose just going back to the challenge of, of apartments, apartments are expensive to build, but we do need to build apartments. What we have proposed, and you know, it's quite a controversial document out there, people say we're, we're taking back gardens. We've made a proposal where you can still deliver dense housing 
but you can do it in two and three story housing. You can still achieve 40 units a hectare. You can still give, give everyone a drive. You can still give everyone a back garden. You actually achieve the same density, but you give a better quality product and you reduce the cost of doing it. That's the main point. Okay, talk to me about your back garden initiative because it has been controversial for those who are aware of it. For those who are not aware of it, what are you suggesting and why? So under the present dynamics of compact growth or sustainable compact growth, you have to achieve a minimum density of about 40 units a hectare. And to achieve 40 units a hectare at this moment in time, the split between housing and apartments is about 45% one and two bedroom apartments and about 55% housing. And we took it away and we said, this is not working. It's neither suiting the consumer's needs and it's neither viable to deliver. And we kind of said, there's three principles we need to achieve. Everyone in the development gets an own door house. Everyone in the development gets X amount of private open space and the public open space is better utilized for everyone in the development. Because if you go to a development today, you'll see one big green area in the front of the development and 20% of those people benefit it, but the other 80% behind it don't see it at all. And what we said is, this is not tangible, this is not equitable, this is not fair on people, so why not take that large space and break it up into smaller pockets, give better quality, and design open space, particularly for a country where the weather and you know eight months of the year is good. How about getting open space that works for 12 months of the year and caters for all tenure, not only for children, but all the way to 65 or 70. Cater for all of those. So that was, the, that was one of the first aspects. And then we looked at it and said, right, so take our two-bedroom apartment. Our two-bedroom apartment on the large size, 80, 800 square foot. And our two-bedroom home is 800 square foot. And the person in the two-bedroom apartment gets six square meters of private open space, which is balcony space. And the person living in the two-bedroom house gets 50 square meters. How is this fair? So what we decided was, how about each one? The concept will be everyone gets a minimum of 40 square meters. And the reason we chose 40 square meters was, if into the future a person decided, well, I love where I live, my family has got bigger, or I want a relative to move in. Whatever the situation might be. You have room to build an you extension. You have room to build an extension. Oh, good, because so you preempted my question yes, on that. Right. that was, and, the, and the rules actually exist, that the minimum garden size that you can have is 25 square metres. Now, the person living in that two-bedroom apartment definitely can't build an extension. So they're out of the cusp. So by doing that, so 40 square metres, was that was the first concept. The second thing we looked at is, how did we end up with such big gardens? And when we look back at it, it was... Rules that were bought in here around World War I from the UK, that from window to window, there had to be a certain distance. Now, there were outdated rules. There were 22 minimum square metres. And what we said was, we went and actually looked at where had the UK moved to. And what we found... Sorry, just go back. Wasn't it the reason being that they had outside toilets? That was the other thing. Sorry, it was to cater for that. There was outside toilets and sheds and things like that. That was, that was the big thing. But some of these were really big gardens. Like some, some gardens have 30 square metres. But that's where the rules originally came from. So we said, okay, right, we've moved modern on as a society so we can do things a little bit better. And the concept we said was, in the UK, they got down to 14 square metres from back to back. We said, well, we'll go to 16. We won't push it all the way to 14, we'll go to 16. We applied 40 square metres to everyone. Everyone got an own door. And we achieved 40 units a hectare. So when we took the exact same development where we had to put apartments and houses together, which one wasn't making viable, we were now able to transform that everyone got an own door product, everyone got 40 square meters of private open space, everyone had their own driveway, and the product came down by 20% in cost. And the reason it came down by 20% in cost was very simple. The, the apartments we had to build to achieve a price to make them viable wasn't in the market. And what was end up happening was the people who were buying the houses had to pay more to subvent the building of the apartments. And we found it astonishing. We found, how can that be? The cost of the apartments were so expensive to build versus the housing. What was end up happening was the houses had to go up to equalize building the apartments. Because the, the, price of so the price of them. So the, the house purchasers ended up oh, subsidizing. Sub, subsidizing the apartments. That's what was happening. And the apartments were probably bought by institutional investors if, who can if, better afford to buy the apartments if, than if, ordinary if, individuals if anyway. Were, in, in some circumstances, you could. 
the majority of circumstances where we really looked at this was particularly in the suburbs because the institutions don't really the, the, the institutions participate in the city centre and to the edge of the M50 but to the edge of the M50 they don't really they don't come out because they just it's not viable because the rent they'd have to charge is up at around 1800 to 2000 euros the other dynamic that really came at play at this and then we kind of looked at it, we went a step further and we said well, we need to look at 20 years down the road. Where's the population going to be and what's the demands of the population? And we decided that to get the best use of housing out was to serve all tenure. So someone who was single could, could get a unit in it. Someone who was maybe starting a family had a product in it. Someone who needed to trade up could buy a product in it. But then we went the other way. Someone who particularly, potentially ended up getting divorced needed a product to trade into and then retirees, because if you could cater for all sectors, now you could make your housing stock move much better. And the other thing too was, by doing this design was, it actually pepper-potted everyone around. So it actually created a much better community, because what's happening at the moment is, you're building apartment blocks, and those people live in there, in, over there, and then you have the housing over here. There's actually no sense of community. Why we kind of came out, how do you create a better sense? And that was our whole thought process about locating the public open space, that it wasn't just 20% of the development, everyone actually got a proportion of open space to benefit what from. What has been the reaction of Official Ireland to that? I think there's been, there's, I think definitely some, some people have really realised that this is the problem now, that really why it has become so unviable has been the apartment element of it. Um, so there's definitely recognition. There is other people who do not want to recognise this. There's, there's people who are adamant about the policies that have been set and trained is just what we're going to say. But state. that brings us back to near enough where we started and the permissions that exist, which are largely for apartments mm -hmm. at present. So we have this, it seems like a vicious circle because we have everyone complaining about the apartments been so expensive that the only people who can afford to buy them are the institutions. And the state moves in in relation to that, but yet the state is the one that has put, or the local councils put in various planning things, which insist on the use of land yes. that apartments have to be. Yes. The that comes factor. from national policy. So a lot of this stemmed from, <clears throat> and I suppose the thing that has been in train here since 2017, we implemented, we used to have a spatial strategy, and then we came up with the national development plan, <clears throat> the national planning framework, sorry. And the national planning framework was to set out a number of aspects. First of all, we used to operate roughly under old guidelines that 60% of the population was in the greater Dublin area and the East Midlands, and 40% of the population, that was roughly the split, was to the rest of the country. Under the national planning framework, that was completely shifted. 50% of it was in the greater Dublin area, and 50% had to be to the other major cities, so Cork, Galway, Limerick, and Waterford. And the problem with those locations is there's neither land, nor there's neither services, there's not roads, and there's not the demand, but we were meant to shift 50% of the population. The idea was that it was a there was to be a transition, so the plan went out to 2040. The problem was, instead of transitioning, we just went for it straight away. And what happened then was to take the pressure off the Greater Dublin area, in their view, was restrict development in, in other locations. So restrict it in the Greater Dublin area and force it to move. And what's happening now is, say in the Greater Dublin area, we've taken out enough of land probably for about 100,000 homes. So we've reduced the quantum of land out there. The other big shift was 50% of all units that were produced under the National Planning Framework had to be apartments. So when you had all of that collider policy, now you can see where you end up. And we are just here now. That's what people don't realise. It's not that this is coming. It has now arrived. And the planning system is telling you that. We are 80% in apartments and 20% in housing. And the frustrating thing and the thing that I'm so worried about is this will take two or three or four years to shift back. And what are we going to be like for those number of years? And the other aspect that we have to remember is the world has changed dramatically in about 180 days. Institutional investors who were here to build apartments, the cost of capital has gone up, interest rates are moving. What if they stand back and say, we can't deliver this because it's just not viable for us? We now have a lesser cohort of housing that we can deliver, which is viable, and the sector can deal with. And the capital that we need for the apartments is minimal. And I suppose when you look at it, I, I kind of have a rough sum that to deliver housing in the present model, 
you need somewhere between 18 and 20 billion euros a year. And the state are only going to pick up four to five. Like, are we asking the state to write checks here for 10 billion euros a year? When does this stop? And what we propose is there's a better way of doing this and you can still achieve the goals you want. That's the premise of our proposal. Kurt, you also are, as well as building the built-to-rent apartments for the institutions, and you do some of that in urban areas, you're now doing a lot of work with local councils, aren't you, in building, is it houses or apartments? So they're a mixture. So the two developments we're, we're involved in is Ballymastow was the first one in, in Fingal, and the second one then is Oscar Trainer Road with DCC. There's about 2,000 units in totality in those. You're probably talking about 800 apartments and 1,200 houses. We would love to build all houses, and we think we could, but unfortunately we have to build within the policy. The interesting thing is we only target these developments to make a percentage of profits. So the cheaper the product can be, the happier we are. That's the ways we look upon it. Uh, because we have to build under the guidelines, it co- the, the, the dramatic expense on those is actually in the apartment developments. And we looked at the exercise, actually, we compared the two partnership projects we had and said, if we were able to apply what we've proposed, we could actually reduce the cost by 20%. Cost the to the state, Cost to the state. And the reaction to that was? Well, it is policy at the moment. They have to it's stick a, with the policy guidelines. The present policy is the policy. is. If the policy changes tomorrow morning, we can apply it. But, but it's like everything. Policy needs to change. And the time lag for policy is the effects of it are phenomenal. Like the national planning framework is now five years old. If it runs for another four or five years, where will we be? We need to take it in. We need to examine. The, 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 the frustrating thing I see about a lot of policy, and, and I, in fairness, I would give the minister, he has tried to do everything he can do. He's tried to deal with what he's been handed. And he's done a lot of really good initiatives. But planning policy has become so opaque. Like, I'm 20 years working at this, and I can't keep pace with it. I'm in the industry day in, day out seven days a week and I can't keep track of what they're doing so I don't know how a minister can keep up to speed with it either and I suppose the frustrating thing I've really seen is it's been policy for the sake of policy but where has the economic assessment been who are we trying to serve at the end of the road and I would start very simply what's the average industrial wage how much can a person afford to pay and we have to design the product from that backwards but what we've actually decided to do is take out a blank piece of paper and say, I want all of this, and I do no cost-benefit analysis. I do no economic assessment. I do know how much is the mortgage repayments. We're just going to put this into the system, and let's see, does it work? Well, there's another angle on that, and that's the central bank rules, which were sort of celebrated by people as a good way to stop people from over-borrowing going into the future. But it has left, it seems, a lot of people in a position whereby they simply can't get a mortgage big enough to cover the cost of purchasing, which then puts them in the bizarre position that they're renting more expensively than it would cost to service a mortgage if they could get one. It's bizarre, but and I would have been a very big critic of the central bank on it. But I think in fairness to them, it has stood us well under a few circumstances. In COVID, it came to the fore. Um, it controlled house prices. House prices would be another 20% higher. And I think the central bank took the view is unless supply meets the real demand, we cannot let credit expansion out of control. Where I think the government have tried to counterbalance it, and I think it's a really good initiative, is um, first home. I think that is going to make the difference. And I looked at that, that, you know, I looked at a consumer who bought a home off us in the last few days. And as interest rates have moved up, say that person was buying a house off us for 400,000 euros and they've gone back to the bank. They, were, they had 10% deposit between that and help to buy. And just simply the banks are now going to model it. We're in higher interest rate environment. You can't get the same amount of money. Shared equity now balances that. So I'm really, I suppose I would see that as a real positive. I would have been highly critical of the central bank, but I can see from the central bank now, and maybe the central bank had a better view of this as, the supply constraints are greater than anyone recognised. If we don't sort this out, we can't allow credit all over the place. So in one sense, I can, as frustrated as I might have been at points in time, and obviously for consumers as well as being really frustrated, I think the balance now is three and a half times is actually good at this moment in time. 
And with shared equity working hand in hand, it's a way of counterbalance. The other really good thing, I suppose, just, just think about it from this perspective, and uh, we would deal with a lot of institutions in the UK. The UK would oper operate at around four and a half times. That actually is now going to come to their detriment because as interest rates, interest rates move up. And, and the problem with just in the UK as an example is their base rate could be 6% because if 10-year gilts are operating off a four, four handle, their actual mortgage rates are going to be six. So can you imagine paying six six times Well, that 6 brings me to the next a, question. On a, a 400,000 euro house. Yeah, well, equities have fallen quite dramatically in value in recent times. Interest rates are flying up. So how come property, if you regard it as an asset class, as an investment, that values haven't fallen? Surely they're going to have to fall. And that then goes back to the point you were making earlier. When, why will the institutional investors come in and invest in apartment blocks in the future if their costs are going up and if values are falling? I think that's the real challenge at this moment in time is where will the institutions be in, in six months' time? Um, I suppose something that we realised quite quickly in, in about 2021 was that you know real interest rates were, in Europe at one stage, negative 20 bips. Um, but yields were at about three and a half. And I suppose our concern was that to, if yields couldn't come down any further, rents had to go up. And I suppose that's been, that's been a problem. Um, I think we're in uncertain territories. Um, I think there's a number of dynamics. You've obviously got the US who are on a charge to crush inflation. Um, and the their central bank have gone at it at full tilt. I think Europe will be a little bit more sanguine because Europe's issue is Inflation is really being caused by an energy crisis, not a demand issue. So Europe probably have a little bit more slack in the system. I think if I was to roll forward, what I can see six months down the road is, I think inflation will have peaked and gone out of the system. And I'll just give you a few examples of why. S supply has been an issue across the board with, you know, as COVID shut down so much, supply was an issue. And, and when America opened up, the demand was just so great. And their, their labor force and their, their, their employment base was so strong. And the consumer doesn't really have much debt in the US. That has been pure supply demand constraints. Then you had a war that, you know, doubled down on this. But if you look at the futures market and where things are, commodities now are back pre-war levels and are trending backwards. Like I look at, you know, we buy steel by the ton and post or sorry, pre-war, say November 2021, steel was costing us about 850 a ton. The day of the war was 1250 and 40 days after the war went to 1650. That just shows you the, the volatility in the commodity side. But it actually has rolled all the way back. Lumber has rolled all the way back. Oil is now back to where it was. So there's a number of aspects that are pushing down inflation. The big thing is, where is China? If China is as bad as people think, the commodity side could come down really quickly. And I think it potentially is. Now, that could have other ramifications. And just to give you an example of how China consumes commodities, China produces 15 million units per year. So one week they'd sort out our problem. They potentially only need about 6 million homes a year. And they have a capacity of about 64 million in the system, which means they have almost 10 years supply. China in the last 10 years consumed more concrete than the entire Western world did in the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s combined in 10 years. So if they go through a bit of a decent flu, commodities will come down. Did you ever consider going back and doing that economics degree that you thought about when you were in secondary school? I think I'm, I'm okay in the role I'm at at the moment. But that, it's, it's something that we definitely are watching. It's something that we're paying close attention to. And you can see the trends. 
there is other, the world has changed. And I suppose, look, being a chief executive of a public company, you have to watch this. The world has changed in the sense of the shift between West and East. We, the thing that people don't, people always bring us back to the 80s, that inflation was really high in the 80s, and we're in the same point in time. And Paul Volcker was the renowned Federal Reserve chairman that crushed inflation. People also forget at his time of when he was running the Fed, he had one massive benefit. China joined the WTO and they produced for the rest of the world and they brought down inflation with Volcker. I think the shift now is the West has to move more of its manufacturing onshore and there's going to be a massive sea change. And you can already see the plates changing. The US is so strong. Europe has to join it. We have to get energy independence. And East is going one way and West is going another way. And I think that's the, the shift that's really going to come. And I think to a degree, China is going to suffer a little bit from that. I want to go back to earlier part of your career because we sort of jumped on from when you set up at 18 and had 100 people working for you. As a plasterer, you got lots of contracts, I think, at the time, didn't you, with a lot of big builders. And then you decided to get into house building on your own. But you didn't go mad during the Celtic Tiger era, did you? Even though there was money available to you from the banks. There was. Um, it was interesting. Um, we started in 2003. We, we started with just nine houses. Uh, we built them really quickly. There was, there was myself and, and, and another guy went together. Um, we bought actually, we, we, we actually started in 2001. So after 9-11... Um, the market had kind of cooled down a good bit and we spotted an opportunity with a small developer who was probably under financial pressure and we went up and we bought two sites off and we built the two houses. We said, we can do this. So then we went, we said, we take our time, we picked our right site, we went and did it. And we, we built up, we, we didn't go crazy. We, we, around 2000, the end of 2005, we stopped and we sold a lot of stuff. And I suppose the view was, I remember... I remember handing the keys over to a, a, a customer one evening and it, those days you kind of did everything. So you managed the, the development and you managed the finance and you managed dealing with the consumer. And you were in your 20s at this stage. I was stage. in my 20s. I started about 23, 24 building. Um, and I went and I met the person and I gave them the keys. And as you do, you bring them through everything. And, you, and I had a bit of a chat. And I realized this person was a civil servant that had probably qualified 12 months. And they were probably on 30 grand to 35 grand. So they had bought a unit off us for about 350,000. So it was 10 times that person's salary. And I'd realized they got a 100% mortgage. And I, thought, mm. and I kind of thought that this, this, this is not going to be, this is not going to survive. Um, so I kind of made the decision. We, we, we parked up in 2006. I went to Australia. Uh, Paul went to do something else. Uh, I went down to Australia, kind of went down for three months, kind of hoping when I came back it would all be unfolding and that would be the opportunity. Came back, hadn't unfolded. Uh, sat back for another month and said, maybe I have this wrong. And we said, look, we're not too bad. We have, we have resources. So we went out and we bought a site and we said, look, this will keep us going. I think about, it wasn't, it wasn't 15 minutes after we bought the site, it had turned. And we realized quite quickly it was gone. You could see it in 2006. What The first indications to me was the outflow deposits. Um, so sales coming in versus deposits outflowing. I knew they were, they were lining up now and I knew there was a problem. Um, so we put our head down and we got through it. We sold as much as we could as quickly. So as house prices were falling, say 5%, we went 10%. If they fell 10, we went 15 just we to shift the stock. Shift and we shifted and we sold whatever we had and we got out of it. And, you know, in fairness, we weren't overexposed. And so it was you never great, ended up in NAMA or never anything Never ended like up that. in NAMA. No, I didn't get the NAMA badge. Um, and maybe I should have. Do you know what I mean? It would have been an experience because obviously I knew people who did go into NAMA. But we were never exposed. But I remember an example of where it was and how crazy it was. Um, and it's funny how things go forward. Um, and a development that we have in Glenville today, and I remember tracking this just to see where the market was. Um, in 2001, there was a piece of land sold, and it was sold for about 15 million euros, roughly. It'd be in the, it was pounds that day, but it was in, in the equivalent of euros. And in 2006, we looked at, we were offered the site. It was about 50 million euros now, um, and we said, oh, that's a lot. 
And we just rang, we rang a financial institution to say, look, we have found this site. What could you do on it and the whole lot? And basically, you could nearly get 100% finance. And we said, right. And, but there was personal guarantees. And I said, oh, that's, that's great. Not, not interested in that. And the site eventually, anyway, uh, it didn't sell. But 50 million was the asking price. And it collapsed. And I did go into NAMA and came out of NAMA. We bought the same site back 20 years on for the 15 million euros. 20 years on. 15. 15, it was exactly the same price, because I remember tracking, it was the exact same price it was 20 years beforehand. It kind of shows you where, you know, a lot of people talk about it's the land market, it's the land prices, it's this is what's causing it. People have lost sight of this. It's not the land market at all. Yes, there's issues in the land market, but this is not the cause of where house prices are. Um, and that was a good example to me of how things have turned. What's really happened and where the big shift is, is Land is X percentage, and you know you, you see our results and we're a public company. We call land out at about 10% or less of, of house prices. So if the house is 300,000 euros, the land is less than 10% of that. The big shift is the cost of producing the product, and that has bulged into the middle, and that's the, the major shift now. But, but come back to the NAMA era, because given that you had been cautious and conservative, you were one of the few then in a really good position to start yes, picking up things. you are. And I remember trying to... I, in 2012, uh, Ronan Lyons was on, I think he could have been on Today FM, and it was a Sunday show. And I was listening to him, and he was talking about the overall market, and he seen that nothing had recovered for a period of time. And I texted in, and I said, house prices will go up by 20%, and rents will go up by X percentage. And that was the start of 2012. And it was turning just at that point in time. And I was right. And what had happened was house prices had collapsed so much. The interesting thing was, and I suppose this was really frightened me, was I knew in 2000 and the start of 2008, I knew the country was goosed. And I'll tell you why. It was very easy to see how much lending the banks had done and how much house prices, if they fell by. And I had a good idea somewhere we were between 30 and 40 was kind of thing. Worst case scenario, we get down by 50. We ended up getting all the way down by 60. But when I ran the model out, I quickly realized the banks were, they were burst. They just, the impairments were going to be massive. And I remember trying to get on the ground here and raise capital and sitting down with people and, you know, the mess, and said, I want to go build houses. And they said, are you mad? Are you serious? This was in 2012. This was 2012. And are you mad? Like, that, that was the attitude, like, you can't go and do something like this. You know, have you not heard about all the ghost estates we are? You could see the data. What always stuck out to me was the rental accommodation that was available. At the height of the madness, when it had all collapsed, there was only 25 or 26,000 units of rent. By the start of 2012, that had got down to 12. And that trend was shrinking on an ongoing basis. And I kind of knew, yes, mortgage availability wasn't here, but things were starting to turn the availability of property. And eventually you did find somebody to partner with. We did, yeah. You, you couldn't partner with anyone on the ground in, in Ireland. There, there was no one interested. There was just, you know, they just said, we're not investing in this So you space. found a Los Angeles-based fund, We, fa- we met up with Oak Tree Capital, yes. Um, in fairness, um, Oak Tree are obviously a substantial investor globally, the probably best part of 100 billion euros or dollars uh, vested globally, uh, major investor. Um, and the contact on the ground here was Justin Bickle. So Justin had tried to come to Ireland. He tried to save McInerney's when they were going into receivership or liquidation. He had failed, but his thesis was Ireland needed house builders. He just needed to find someone to do. We, we actually met by accident. We were, we were introduced by, by a person and we met by accident. And we were kind of, uh, we were just shooting the breeze. And I said to him something about IRR and it twigged with him. He says, house builders don't know about IRRs. So from there, we kind of, we, we, we kind of, eventually we came together and um, in fairness to him, he was involved in Glenvay and he was a critical part of it, you know. Um, of course, he died recently. He died recently, just 51. Yeah, that must have been a quite a shock, was wasn't it? quite a shock, yeah. And, and Justin was a unique character. He always lived, he lived at a fast pace in the sense of he worked really, really hard. He never smoked, he never drank, but he was, he was, he was always, you know, he'd always be on a day in, day out. It was always about the work. Obviously, he made really good time for his family and stuff like that. He'd, he'd find the balance really good. But yeah, really, really young, died of uh, cardiac arrest. So um, 
you know. Do you find the hard. balance though? Because I mean, you get a shock when you know somebody like that who's only a few years older than yeah, you. Yeah, and and in fairness, I I knew another colleague as well who passed away, and um, you know, a friend of mine, and. It does. It makes you very much aware. I, I always found the balance that and, and something I really grew into was you kind of have to pull yourself back. And, you know, I was very much micromanagement would be I would have been renowned for it. But I learned how to adapt and I learned the more I grew into the role and the more I had to lead. And to a degree, Justin gave me great cover because at the first days of, you know, when we became a public company, Justin obviously was the CEO. You know, he dealt with institutions, he dealt with whatever the issues were. It gave me the space to breathe and kind of get the operations up and going. And I learned how to, you know, from going from a small private little company to a big behemoth in, in the sense of where the Irish market is, the transition is massive. So that that really lended itself. So credit to him, it took the pressure off me and all that. So. Um, but yeah, we, obviously, you know, Justin always said to me, he was never going to do it forever. As he said, you know, we were sitting down one day having a chat and we were talking about, I don't know much about laying bricks. He was a lawyer by background. He was a very good lawyer. And he knew how to deal with all that financial world and institutions. You know, he could, he could separate the wood from the trees and that from. Um, so he always said, you know, he was never going to be here forever doing it. He never wanted to do it forever, but to get it up and running. And then I suppose he handed over the baton to me, so. I want to come to being a publicly quoted company in a few moments, and I am conscious of the time, but I'm fascinated by all of this. Tell me about your commitment to what you call building lasting communities, because I'm interested earlier in you were talking about the use of green space, uh, public space, and it been equitable, which I think is interesting, because... An awful lot of builders would have the reputation of just literally throw the houses up and get on and move on to something else and not caring literally about what is there for the people who live there and it's about what other facilities and everything are there as well as the actual houses themselves. What do you do in that regard? And in fairness to the industry, it has a really bad rep. Um, I think a lot of people have scars of what was left years ago and but it has changed and there's a number of aspects that have changed it for the better but i suppose where we're trying to go we take a development first of all we really look at where we want to be in five to ten years time where do we want to be building and who do we want to be serving building those homes um so critical to us what we try to do is align ourselves with well, where is the population going to be where is that demand required and how are we going to deliver product to them um, so a lot of forward planning, you know, we have identified all the locations we want to go into over the next five to 10 years. We've identified the product we're going to deliver. Then on top of that, I suppose, where we're really trying to do is, and, and something that I suppose has got hollowed out a bit is, you know, you look at the, your banks have closed down, your post office is now under threat, the, the local pub. And I suppose what we've really identified is, we're not taking a two or three year view. We're taking a 20 to 30 year view. So we intend to be here for many, many years. And to us, critical is the community. Because if we can ingrain ourselves in the community and be part of that community and how we serve that community, that's to a degree for us an operation that's going to be there for many, many years. And that's why we kind of really come at this from a number of fronts. We identify where we want to be. We identify the land we want. And then the product we go in and build and try and engage with the community. Like what we try to do in our, all our developments is before, and I was on one yesterday, uh, Dermot Bannon was actually out in it. Um, and he was astonished at the ways we come about it because we go in and we put all the roads and the services in. We put all the streetlights up. We put the playgrounds in. We put all the parks in. And then we go build the houses. So when the consumer comes and moves in, everything is now plug and play. And what we try to do with the, the homeowner is that when they're moving in, they actually have, we've their ESB sorted out, we've their, their uh, broadband sorted out, so they can turn on their Wi-Fi, because that's critical. Wi-Fi is now one of the, uh, the biggest utilities required. Then, I suppose, for us, broader than that is, what we're trying to do is engaging with the community and where we can support it, and really it's at that lower base. It's the under fives, it's the under sixes, it's, it's the stuff that no one will do, but we feel it's a vital role because when a family moves into a town that they may not know, and now in Glenvair fully engaged, it actually is much easier for them to connect. 
And all of that makes more sense to us. And for us then, as we look through it, we now have a customer base in that community. They now can talk to their friends and kind of say, well, I bought a home off Glenvay here. Here's everything I know, know about it. Here's where the school plays are. They then become nearly an advertisement for you. So all of that is critical for us. And absolutely, had the development industry a bad rep? Absolutely. Are we doing everything perfect at this moment? Absolutely not. But we are working on it. We are making it better day by day. Like, we have a customer care business now with the business, which wouldn't have been thought about. In, in what do you mean by so customer care So basically, after business. you move into the house, we will have a callback service. We will come back and look after things. We have a few things we have to look after. But we will come out and we will deal with any of the issues. And we do that for a period of time. So you'll get a phone call off us six months after moving in. How are you getting on? How's things? Is there any issues? You know, there may be a defect that we need to go back and rectify. But that's the ways we need to move forward. The service we have to provide for the for or the service we have to provide for the customer just needs to improve. Would that also apply then in the case when you're doing work for the councils, such as you're talking about uh, in Fingal and yes. Dublin City Council area? Yeah, and actually, the th- the biggest thing we have to stand behind those developments is up to about ten years we have to stand behind them. So the project that we have to deliver, you know, whatever we build, it'll be up to ten to twelve years afterwards that the business will stand behind that. So any issues any defects, anything like that, we will... Ideally, prevention is better than cure. So we try to eliminate them. But if there is any issues, we we stand behind them. And I suppose that's the difference with the business we have is that, you know, we're obviously a quite robust business. We have a very good balance sheet. We're not over-leveraged. So we have the capability of doing this. Yeah, how much land do you have and how long is it going to take you to build out on it? So we have about 15,000 plots in the business at the moment. Um, And at an average run rate, we probably see ourselves getting to about 3,000 units. It's the average uh, medium-term target for the business, but we think we may be able to go beyond that, um, depending on the dynamics. So So you're not hoarding land, is again another... No, this is another thing. Yeah, this is... I'd love to be able to produce. I'll give you an example of this. This is just, I'll give you a live example of what I'm seeing in the business. We're on one development at the moment and we bought this site in 2017. We only got to start building it around June 2021. And by March of 2023, from June 2021 to March 2023, we will have all 350 units fully complete. But it took me four years to get the site activated. And then it took me another 12 months to get all the utilities to come, come with me. The longest end and the easiest point of development should be at the front end of it. And the hardest part is at the back end when you're trying to deliver the homes. But it's vice versa. I have seen Sorry, what land, caused the delay? It's the system now. The system is absolutely... Sorry, getting the planning? Getting the planning. Getting the, getting the, getting, getting the planning, getting the utility companies getting all of that in place is taking me longer than it is to build the product. People don't realise that. Well, one last thing. You're one of only two publicly quoted home builders, yourself and Karen. Again, I thought this was something that was supposed to change as a result of the crash rather than all these small businesses around the country depending on loan finance from the banks, that this was going to be the model that you would have publicly quoted companies raising equity, not been so reliant on debt. You did it, Cairn did it. Why have so few others done it? And why also do you not seem to have been rewarded by the stock market for it? It's a good question. Um, I think it's not for everyone. Um, being in the scrutiny of public markets is not for everyone it's, it is a different gravy as they say um, but it has good aspects to it it has obviously having the capital behind you particularly you know the first real crisis we really had was COVID um, no one really knew where the world was going to go with COVID and I suppose what we could see is because we had the equity base because we had institutional investors God forbid anything happened you could tap markets so Fortunately, we didn't have to, but that's where the real benefit was. Obviously, scale is is the other big aspect, and I suppose for us, it's really getting to scale. On where the trajectory is in in the present markets, and the present markets have been chaotic for the best part of two or three years up and down, um, we've actually outperformed at this moment in time, particularly this week when we see our UK peers and our UK house builders are down by 50, 60, 70%. Um, There is a lot of there's a lot of uncertainty in capital markets at this moment of time because really they don't know where interest rates are going to go. 
what's the cost of capital. We are in a new world now. Um, we were in a world for 10 years where we lived on quantitative easing. Central banks printed money, money was really inexpensive and it was available to the masses. We're now in a world where there's less capital and we're in quantitative tightening. The ramifications of that has only begun, so how they all pan out. Well, just to finish, so does that mean, and I don't want to finish on a negative note or worrying note, but realistically, does that suggest that with all of the other issues that you've brought up in relation to our planning systems and the utility connections and all the rest of it, that we have a housing crisis here in Ireland that may go on for another five years more? If we are not willing to take radical action quicker, and I mean it's radical action on the supply side, not on the demand side. In fairness to this government, I think credit to them. They have done as much as they can possibly do now to help homeowners to get home ownership. But if we do not look at what's the supply constraints, we won't get through this. And I go back to that point I made much earlier. Just look at what's in the planning system. If 80% of everything we have is apartments, and if the majority of them are unviable, how are we ever going to get through this? And that's why I just think, that's why we've made our proposal. We think if you really went at this, and you don't have to be radical, you just have to look at what is, what is blocking this? What are the issues? Why are we trying to change so much policy when we're not doing the most important thing? Who are we trying to serve? And if we're trying to serve that customer at the end of this journey, should we not design the policies to streamline all that? Stephen Garvey, it's been great having you here. Thank you very much for joining us on the Magnified Podcast. Thank you. And I was Stephen Garvey, the Chief Executive of Glenvey, the latest guest in the Magnified series of podcasts. Now, there are lots more there. At this stage, we have more than 20 there for you to go back on and enjoy if you've missed out on the series to date. Or there might be ones that you just didn't get a chance to turn to, even though you've heard others. If you'd like it, please give it a five-star review or a thumbs up wherever it is that you get your podcasts and make it available to your friends as well you never know they might enjoy it too on a long drive or a long walk so until the next time from me matt cooper thank you very much for joining us on the magnified podcast